everyone, and welcome to the lecture podcast for English 102 about Little Snow White and Snow Glass Apples. As always, you can find the PDF of the lecture slides to accompany this podcast in your Canvas module. So you've probably noticed that both of these short stories... Uh, Little Snow White, which was assigned reading for last week, and Snow Glass Apples, which was assigned reading for this week, are based off the same root story. They come from the same sort of legend or fairy tale, uh, the story of Snow White. Neither of these is the original version of the story. This story is older uh, than our ability to track a specific origin. It was a, an oral tale long before it was ever transcribed, was ever written down, uh, and sort of passed into popular culture in written form. So it existed in oral popular culture before this, uh, and then it has endured into uh, in books, movies, uh, TV shows, in, in pretty much every form of popular cultural media. It's an enduring story. And that said, even though you might think you know the story, it's really, really important that you read each version because every version is different and those differences themselves are really telling. So we'll start with Little Snow White. And this is the first transcription of what was formerly an oral tale. Jakob and Wilhelm Grimm were folklorists in 19th century Germany who transcribed, who went around and collected the folk tales uh, or fairy tales that everyone knew, uh, but no one had sort of written down. And in the process of writing them down, they changed the stories often, changed aspects of the stories to suit their own understanding about what was suitable to be in these stories. Because while this wasn't their origin, uh, at least we're fairly certain this wasn't their origin, these tales have, or this tale in particular, has come to be one of those things that was considered for children. So it's a didactic tale, a, a teaching story, as many fairy tales are. It is possible, even probable, that you've seen one of Disney's sort of remakes of this concept. Uh, the Grimm's were sort of the first to modernize this story for 19th century children, which is different from 20th or 21st century children, but more similar to what we would consider modern childhood than earlier versions in the 17th and 18th centuries, where children were essentially considered miniature adults and weren't shielded uh, from certain themes and ideas in the same ways that uh, we consider it necessary as a culture, or as cultures often to shield them today. So Little Snow White, with that sort of lead in, how closely did you read the story? Some questions for you on slide three. Uh, how many of the characters in the story actually have names? How many times does the queen try to kill little Snow White? Uh, what devices does she use in order to do this? When does the prince fall in love with little Snow White? And why did I put fall in love in quotation marks? And finally, how does the story end? 
So this would be a good moment to pause the podcast and to do your best to answer these questions. Okay, assuming you thought about the questions, you went back through the text uh, to confirm anything that might not have been, any answer that might not have immediately leapt to your mind. So let's move on, let's keep talking. Hold on to those answers. Let's talk about the protagonist. A protagonist is a main character, a central focus of a story, central character focus of a story. Uh, Once upon a time in midwinter, when the snowflakes were falling like feathers from heaven, a queen sat sewing at her window, which had a frame of black ebony wood. And as she sewed, she looked up at the snow and pricked her finger with her needle. Three drops of blood fell into the snow. The red on the white looked so beautiful that she thought to herself, if only I had a child as white as snow, as red as blood, and as black as the wood in this frame. Soon afterward, she had a little daughter who was as white as snow, as red as blood, and as black as ebony wood, and therefore they called her Little Snow White. And as soon as the child was born, the queen died. This quote is on slide four. So our protagonist here is also the only character in the short story to have a name rather than a title or designation. Uh, The prince, the huntsman, the queen. These are job descriptions rather than specific identities. And that's significant, right? If you're the only character in a story that has a name that is different from your role in society, that marks you as something separate and apart. Uh, One thing it does, perhaps, is give the character more individuality, more interiority, because they are and they sort of defined as a person rather than where they sit in the social structure or what job they have. But it could also mean that she doesn't have a place, that she can't be labeled and described, although that sort of falls apart a little bit because she is sometimes referred to as the princess. But she's not just the princess in the way that a lot of the characters in this short story uh, are just their jobs. Okay, so other things to notice about the beginning of the story uh, is that this is not necessarily uh, an not a happy story, right? And it's also a bit odd. Uh, so the queen, little Snow White's mother, is sewing. She pricks her finger. Uh, she bleeds on the snow uh, on the window frame. And she, lo- she looks at that combination of colors and thinks, that's gorgeous. I wish I had a kid that came in this color scheme, which is odd, right? <laughs> Let's just stipulate that that's a bit odd. Uh, Let's look also at the emphasis on, even though this is a kind of a set color scheme, right? White, black, red. Whiteness is always emphasized first. It's the it's her name. She becomes Little Snow White, not Little Ebony Wood. She's Little Snow White. Um, and the red on the white, this idea of white. White is the first. Only had a child as white as snow. Okay, so she's got a color scheme picked out. She gets the kid to match the color scheme. But look at the last line there. And as soon as the child was born, the queen died. Now, it's not uncommon for mothers to die in childbirth, particularly in the times that the story came from, and even in the 19th century when the story is being transcribed. So this might not set off any uh, specific alarms of malfeasance, uh, but it does sort of, it's kind of telling that mother and daughter don't exist in the same space, uh, 
for very long, that as soon as the child's born, the queen dies. So the queen who wanted her so much uh, dies during her birth or at the moment of her birth. And she gets a stepmother. And that stepmother, the new queen, is jealous because Snow White is so beautiful. She has a mirror uh, and she asks it, who's the fairest of them all? And it says, yeah, you're pretty, but Snow White is prettier. And so she sends the huntsman out to murder the child, right? Uh, murder her stepdaughter. Now, this part of the story is very well known. Um, it's really interesting. Why do you guys think the queen, the new queen, is so obsessed with beauty? What is it about beauty that matters so much? You could make the argument, and I think you can, should make the argument, that the queen seems incredibly vain here. But think about how much beauty is tied to power. When the old queen, Snow White's birth mother, is wishing for a child, she's not wishing for a child uh, who's nice or who's smart or who's kind. She's wishing for a child who's pretty. And it also seems like the new queen, the stepmother, she really cares about her looks. So there must be something about beauty, particularly female beauty, that equates to power, right? It, it must be necessary, or it definitely seems to be necessary to survive in this world. But as we know from reading the short story, the uh, huntsman can't bear to kill little Snow White. Anyone remember why he can't bear to kill her? Yeah, because she's so beautiful. Again, this sort of power of female beauty, right? It's not that it's morally and ethically wrong. It's that she's really pretty, so he can't quite do it. So she gets out, she runs away. Uh, fans of other fairy tales will recognize the sort of three bears moment uh, where she finds the cottage of the dwarves and she sort of messes around in their stuff until she finds the food in the bed that's just right for her. Uh, this is a common trope in fairy tales. Uh, and, and before it sort of got associated with the three bears, it cropped up a lot. And it has a lot to do with sort of perceptions of hospitality. She's being a spoiled little princess in this moment, right? She's taking stuff that isn't hers, uh, and she's sort of going through it willy-nilly without thinking about other people's convenience. And the dwarves are not super impressed with this. They offer her, however, a bargain. Uh, she can stay with them. She tells them the story of of what happened to her. And this is the quote on slide five. Uh, so she tells them this horrific story about her stepmother trying to kill her. Um, and the dwarves say, all right, but they don't offer her sanctuary without conditions, right? They say, if you will keep house for us and cook, make beds, wash, sew and knit and keep everything clean and orderly, then you can stay with us and you shall have everything that you want. And Snow White agrees to the bargain. So she keeps house for them. Every morning they went into the mountains looking for ore and gold. And in the evening when, and in the evening when they came back home, their meal had to be ready. So it's really interesting here, right? That it's a, the dwarves aren't impressed by her rank or her status, not enough to sort of set up a little court for her and cater to her whims. Instead, they want her to work. They also have very particular ideas of the kind of work she can do. They don't take her into the mines with them, for example. They instead assign her to managing the household, cooking, cleaning, 
uh, meal preparation. So this is a very gendered division of labor. It's really interesting because before she came, they had been sharing these tasks, right? They all did their share of domestic work and they also worked in the mines. But rather than adding her to the rotation, uh, as they had been doing, they're like, all right, you're a girl, you cook, you clean. And remember that fairy tales uh, are didactic. They're teaching texts. So if you are a little girl reading this story uh, in the 19th century, then you get reinforced for you that the sort of realm in which women work is the home. You also get taught a lesson that work is necessary, right? The dwarves, unlike the queen, are not corrupt. They're not evil. Uh, and they have, they sort of enforce, or they don't seem to be, and they sort of enforce an ethos that is uh, about work for pay, right? Like something for something. You do work, you get this in return. So you have this kind of idea of a work ethic as well as a gender division of labor that's being held out as a kind of ideal situation. Like this is when Snow White runs from her nightmare, excuse me, when little Snow White runs from her nightmare, this is what she ends up with and in this good and stable place. Of course, it doesn't last. The uh, evil queen, with the help of the magic mirror, finds little Snow White and attempts to kill her. And it's really interesting, right, that in this version of the story, she makes multiple attempts. The poisoned apple is the last and arguably most successful, although not completely successful, version. But before that, she, ha she offers the comb and the bodice laces. And again, you can kind of see the... Uh, repetition, what happens in that exchange, in those exchanges as teachable moments, right? Little Snow White does something she shouldn't do. She opens the door to a stranger, yes, uh, but she also takes things without paying for them, right? She doesn't, um, a peddler offers her like pretty things, which she likes, pretty things that are associated with female clothing, with female groups, so with beauty. Again, we have this idea of, of beauty and femininity and really strict sort of gendered expectations. But both times she doesn't, you know, she just takes things um, and she, she doesn't, she's not distrustful and she doesn't sort of give a fair exchange for them. And they end up killing her temporarily until, so she's temporarily dead until the dwarves can, you know, come back, let her out, lecture her. Uh, and the fact that she doesn't seem to learn maybe tells us something about who she is uh, if you're if you're sort of judging Little Snow White right now for for not uh, for not for being sort of guileless for not um, learning her lesson, we can think about this as a sort of narrative device. We can think about like it's necessary for her not to learn so that uh, the audience reading the story can have the same lesson sort of driven home to them again and again. Particularly if you're aiming a lesson at children, this idea is that the re repetition will be reinforcement. Or it could just be that uh, she's not easy to, uh, she doesn't pay attention or, you know, something like that. But I would argue that there's a significant reason that she doesn't pay attention. All right. So eventually the prince comes, right? And then you have the love story, which I put in quotation marks uh, in my questions. And I'm also putting in quotation marks here in slide six. Because when the prince meets little Snow White, he doesn't really meet her because she's already dead. She's in a coffin. So we look at this quotation on slide six. Now it came to pass that a prince entered these woods and happened onto the dwarf's house where he sought shelter for the night. 
He saw the coffin on the mountain with beautiful Snow White in it, and he read what was written on it with golden letters. Then he said to the dwarfs, let me have the coffin. I will give you anything you want for it. But the dwarfs answered, we will not sell it for all the gold in the world. Then he said, then give it to me, for I cannot live without being able to see Snow White. I will honor her and respect her as my most cherished one. As he thus spoke, the good dwarfs felt pity for him and gave him the coffin. The prince had his servants carry it away on their shoulders, but then it happened that one of them stumbled on some brush, and this dislodged from Snow White's throat the piece of poisoned apple that she had bitten off. Not long afterward, she opened her eyes, lifted the lid from her coffin, sat up, and was alive again. "'Good heavens, where am I?' she cried out. The prince said joyfully, "'You are with me.' He told her what had happened, and then said, "'I love you more than anything else in the world. Come with me to my father's castle. You shall become my wife.' Snow White loved him, and she went with him. Their wedding was planned with great splendor and majesty. So uh, you might notice uh, that it's not true love's kiss that wakes little Snow White up in this version. Uh, and you might also notice that this isn't much of a conventional love story. It might be love at first sight, but what he falls in love with is uh, a corpse. And he originally sort of bargains for the coffin, and, um, and, and sort of the, the sight of this dead body. So his ideal woman is just a pretty dead thing to look at. This is what he falls in love with, uh, which may be sending up some red flags about the kind of agency and, and sort of what he values about women. There's also kind of a fraught moment here. The dwarves don't want to sell the coffin but then he said, then give it to me, for I cannot live without being able to see it. So do we think that the dwarves actually feel this, this immense sympathy for him? Or is it likely that you, it's, bad, it's a bad idea to say no to a prince? What we might have here is a kind of uh, implied threat, right? Like, if you won't take my money, I'm taking this anyway. Uh, you better give me this thing or, you know. You're, you are so much less, the dwarves are so much less socially uh, and politically than a prince is that they really don't have the clout to refuse. So either they legitimately felt pity for him or he intimidated, intimidated them into it. And it's a bit hard to tell from this context. Now, the prince doesn't seem to mind when she wakes up uh, and they move immediately from, oh, good, you're conscious to we're going to get married. So there's a lot that happens here. Um, we can think about what it means that he loves her more than anything, uh, even though she's conscious, but that it wasn't a requirement of the story. And we probably should think about that. All right, finally, we want to think about the last lines of Little Snow White, uh, because it doesn't end with that uh, promise of a wedding. Instead, it ends with Snow White's stepmother coming to that wedding, right? This is a quote on slide seven. And she comes to the wedding and they put her in a pair of iron shoes uh, that had been put into burning coals. They were brought forth with tongs and placed before her. She was forced to step into the red hot shoes and dance until she fell down dead. So there's a very gruesome ending for the queen who admittedly is an attempted murderer 
But the it's interesting, right? Because endings are always important. So it's not the quote unquote love story or the marriage that is the final image. It's of the queen suffering and dying in a really horrific way. All right. So on slide eight, I have just a few more questions. I lied when I said finally earlier. No, not, not quite finally. Uh, a few more questions for you. Little Snow White, as transcribed by Jakob and Wilhelm Grimm, was published multiple times. What year was this text originally published? And then name at least one change the Grimm's made between the first edition and the ones that came afterward. And finally, what was the text's original language? Now, I'll move on to slide nine here. Just a, a pointed reminder for you guys. When you read a text, you need to read all of the text. That includes the footnotes, the endnotes, the headers, the translator's notes. Uh, there's really valuable information to be found in these places and students are held accountable, not just in this class, but across sort of academic standards for every part of the text they're assigned, not just the quote unquote main part. So all of the questions that I asked you can be answered if you read the entire text. So if you haven't done so, Go back and do so now. The answers, by the way, are first published in 1812, and the original language is German, high German to be specific. Okay, but the most interesting question that I asked you guys was about the changes to the text, because there are some significant ones. And these are on slide 10. Beginning with the edition of 1819, the Grimm's added the statement that Snow White's mother died during childbirth and that her father remarried. In the first edition, presumably the version closest to its oral sources, Snow White's jealous antagonist is her own mother, not a stepmother. And in the second, beginning with the edition of 1819, the poisoned apple is dislodged when a servant accidentally stumbles while carrying the coffin to the prince's castle. In the first edition, the apple is dislodged when a servant, angry for having to carry Snow White's coffin wherever the prince goes, strikes the sleeping princess. All right. So these changes are significant. They represent alterations from the original oral form that the Grimm's felt were necessary. Let's start with the last one. Uh, that what's the difference between having the poison apple fall out of Snow White's mouth when a servant stumbles uh, while carrying the coffin versus when a servant who's angry about having to lug a presumably heavy coffin with a corpse, admittedly gorgeous corpse, but still corpse, around in it uh, and, and striking that, that corpse, striking the, sleep, the princess. Well, one of those is definitely less violent than the other, and it also reflects a certain class-based frustration, right? Um, there's a certain way in which the unreasonableness of a prince saying like, to, the, to his attendants, this has been a fun trip, but you know what would be even better? If we hauled this coffin back with us, right? Like, um, there's a kind of working class resistance and anxiety in the first version that is not in the, in the version that was changed, that is not in the oops, I stumbled and the apple fell out. And you want to think about that in conjunction with that kind of odd moment where the prince doesn't give up. Like they say, we don't want to sell it. It's like, great, give it to me. So there's a kind of way in which class tensions uh, are being papered over in the newer vision of the version of the story. The other change that used to be Snow White's biological mother, that one's interesting too, right? Because 
the evil stepmother is a bit of a cliche uh, in, in the sort of modern fairy tales, fairy tales of the 19th, 20th, and 21st century, because we have this very close, I believe, because we have this closely held cultural uh, convention. It's something that's very sort of endemic to, to the way we as society project things, that motherhood is a sacred bond, uh, and that your biological mother, your birth mother, would never wish you any harm. Now, is that always true? Absolutely not. But it is a cultural conception that is held very dear. Uh, and so, and it is another marker that it is a, a cultural convention is that this wasn't always the truth, right? That, um, or at least it wasn't always the truth in the world of the story. That the original version, it's uh, Snow White's original, it's her birth mother. So we can clearly see in this change a kind of understanding of the uh, conventions about motherhood and the sort of stereotypes or archetypes that the Grimm brothers did not want their fairy tale to uh, trespass on. So they changed it to the stepmother. All right, so on slide 11, I have outlined for you guys some of the themes of the text. Remember, a theme is uh, a major idea or concept that seems important to the story. So we've got violence, we've got necrophilia, we've got class, we've got gender roles, and perhaps a little bit of child labor. One last question for you guys. How old is little Snow White? Ah. Look at the beginning again. Slide 12. Snow White grew up and became ever more beautiful. When she was seven years old, she was as beautiful as the light of day, even more beautiful than the queen herself. So absent any other age markers, think about the story again, but happening to a seven-year-old girl. How does this change how we read the story? How does it change the way we read the quote-unquote love story between Snow White and the prince? How does it change the way we see the way the dwarves treated her, right? And the mistakes that she made. Maybe she's not a selfish and entitled royal. Maybe she's a seven-year-old kid who doesn't understand about, you know, not stealing, not eating someone's dinner without, a, without asking or, you know, who likes presents, now, I say this as a, from a very 21st century perspective, right? But clearly, the expectation in the story is that Seven is old enough to, to know these things and to understand them and to take part in a very adult world. One of the other things that fairy tales in particular allow us to do is to, see, to notice what parts of a story and what sort of social, political, cultural conventions they, uh, that they depict remain familiar to audiences as time passes and which, one cha which ones change. I would say that this would be considered, as all of this happening to a seven-year-old would be considered, uh, she'd be considered way too young for, for any of the stuff that happens to her, for marriage, uh, for a full-time job, uh, for murder attempts. So this is interesting as well. So the next short story is Snow Glass Apples. And this was written by Neil Gaiman. Neil Gaiman is uh, probably a familiar name to some of you. He's the author of Coraline, Stardust, 
American Gods, some other really familiar works that ha have made it into television, film, etc. Snow Glass Apples was originally published in 1999, so there's quite a jump here from the early 1800s to the late 1900s. And Snow Glass Apples, even though it's working from the same legend, the same underlying fairy tale, uh, the same Little Snow White story, uh, is doing so to a very different effect. So let's look at slide 14. A lot of the way this story is put together can read like a deliberate revision of the Grimm Brothers uh, version. Remember the Grimm Brothers short story, uh, Little Snow White, was the first time that this very, very old story had been transcribed, had been written down. And there are definitely places in Little Snow White where it feels like Gaiman is act actively revising that original transcript. Uh, so Little Snow White... I did not, or excuse me, snow glass apples. I did not do this thing and we pay for our mistakes. They say I was fooled that it was not her heart, that it was the heart of an animal, a stag perhaps or a boar. They say that and they are wrong. And some say, but it is her lie, not mine, that I was given the heart and that I ate it. Lies and half-truths fall like snow, covering the things that I remember, the things I saw, a landscape unrecognizable after a snowfall. That is what she has made of my life. So the narrator here and the protagonist in this version of the story is not the princess, is not the Snow White figure. It is instead the queen, the stepmother. And she begins by saying, the story's not true. The story that you all know, the fairy tale that you all know with the huntsman and the heart and me being the, the murderous evil one, it's not true. Uh, that, and in this story, the snow is not about beauty. It's not about fairness. It's not about... Um, Fairness in the sense of, of, uh, of, of pallor and, and beauty, etc. It's not about, or even fairness in the sense of, of just, it's not about that. Snow here is about lies, uh, covering things up, uh, landscape unrecognizable after a snowfall. That is the story. And the queen here, our narrator here, is instead promising us the true story, which is familiar, but very different. In this story, the princess is not quite right, right? Look at slide 15. This is the story, or this is the part of the story where um, the queen is interacting with her new stepchild. I'm hungry, she said, like any child. It was winter when fresh food is a dream of warmth and sunlight, but I had strings of whole apples cored and dried hanging from the beams of my chamber, and I pulled an apple down for her. Here. Autumn is the time of drying, of preserving, a time of picking apples, of rendering the goose fat. Winter is the time of hunger, of snow, and of death. It is the time of the midwinter feast, when we rub the goose fat into the skin of a whole pig, stuffed with that autumn's apples, then we roast it or spit it, and we prepare to feast upon the crackling. She took the dried apple from me and began to chew it with her sharp yellow teeth. Is it good? She nodded. I'd always been scared of the little princess, but at that moment I warmed to her, and with my fingers, I gently scroped her cheek. She looked at me and smiled. She smiled, but rarely. Then she sank her teeth into the base of my thumb, the mound of Venus, and she drew blood. Okay, so here, a familiar object, a familiar item, right? The apple. Uh, but here, the apple's not poisoned. It's not an attempt to, to murder the child. Yeah, it, it's a... 
when we see apples in this moment, we see apples that are um, preserved, are sources of life. And we also get a lot of foreshadowing uh, that, you know, we stuff the apple, we, we stuff pig, a pig with these apples and then roast it in goose grease, which is pretty much what happens to the queen at the end of this version of the short story. So that's creepy. Uh, also super creepy, even if you haven't read that far yet, is the fact that the child uh, bites her and draws blood. So even here she's not, she says, like any child. But this really isn't a normal child. Um, so the uncanniness, the deadness of it all, um, not quite deadness yet, but the uncanniness and the, and the sort of inherent violence is coming from a different source here. There's also a flip in the uh, queen's motivations for opposing Little Snow White, right? Not only is the child such a and I should ask you, is the child ever referred to as Snow White or Little Snow White in this version of the story? And if so, why is it so tempting, or if not, why is it so tempting to keep using that word? So I should switch to the princess here. Okay, so the other thing that we want to think about as being markedly different in this version of the story is the queen's motivations. So look on, on slide 16. In this version... The queen is motivated by a desire to be a queen, to protect her people. Uh, the people of the forest, in fact, come to her and say, we need your help. Someone is murdering us. So it's a very different version of leadership and of what queenly duties encompass, right, than um, in Little Snow White, because it's not necessarily, it's not about beauty. Uh, it's about responsibility and uh, her interaction with mirror or magic mirror is not quite that right we don't have the magic mirror but instead we have a queen who is still magical who is still a kind of witch-like figure but it works very differently i come to you because you are wise he continued when you were a child you found a strayed foal by staring into a pool of ink when you were a maiden you found a lost infant who had wandered far from her mother by staring into that mirror of yours you know secrets and you can seek out things hidden. My queen, he asked, what is taking the forest folk? Next year there will be no spring fair. The travelers from other kingdoms have grown scarce and few. The folk of the forest are almost gone. Another year like the last and we shall all starve. So here it's a responsibility to her kingdom, to her people that motivates her not to just let little Snow White stay gone. And then also... Uh, as we talked about a little bit earlier on slide 17, a very different take on the ending. She's not forced to dance into her death. She's instead roasted like the whole pig that she was describing earlier. Uh, now, the relationship between the prince and the princess in this story is much more graphically rendered, right? It makes explicit what was sort of implicit in the Grimm Brothers version. It's capitalizing on some of the same themes, um, particularly necrophilia, but it does so in a way that is much more graphic, uh, that depicts it much more openly than the sort of implicit or hinted way that it showed up in the Grimm Brothers story. And a lot of people find that very jarring to read. And, and that's the point, right? Like that was Gaiman's intention, I, I believe, as, as he's writing it, is to make this part of the story just as sort of uh, monstrous in a way as the princess herself, as this sort of 
the prince is not off the hook for the, the things that he desires and the way that he is. Uh, he is, in his own way, uh, a kind of... What's the word that I want here? A kind of monster, perhaps? Or at least willing to be complicit in monstrosity to get what he wants. And what he wants um, is spelled out very, very clearly. So all in all, the same base story, but a very different take. And this feels like a good time to revisit something that we've been talking about all semester, and that's really at the heart of uh, analysis, right? And uh, also of writing. So reading and writing, reading analytically allows you to write analytically. It's, just, it's sort of a pillar of that kind of critical thinking process. So let's revisit some of the, the rules that sort of help us to read analytically. Slide 19, rule number one, start by taking literary work on its own terms. Adjust to the work. Don't make the work adjust to you. Be prepared to hear things you do not want to hear. Not all works are about your ideas, nor will they always present emotions you want to feel. Listen to the work first. Later, you'll explore the ways you do or don't agree with it. Pay attention to each text. Try to understand what it's saying. Don't read things that aren't there into it or bend what you think an author or character is saying to what you want that author or character to say. Be careful about your own prejudices and assumptions. A lot of people are not going to like snow glass apples. There's a lot about it that's deliberately designed to make you uncomfortable. That's okay. It's okay if you liked it. It's okay if you didn't like it. Same for Little Snow White. Same for every text that we read for this class. What your job is in this class, and as an academic, as someone who's working academically with text, is to analyze and think about the cause of those effects. Not just, I didn't like this, or it made me uncomfortable, but why didn't I like it? Why did it make me uncomfortable? Rule two, assume that there's a reason for everything. Writers do make mistakes, but when a work shows some degree of control, it's usually safest to assume that the writer cho chose each word carefully. If the choice seems peculiar, try to account for it. What effects does this peculiar choice have? Try to account for everything in a work, see what kind of sense you can make of it, and figure out a coherent pattern that explains the text as it stands. Rule number three, remember that literary texts exist in time and times change. Everything from the meaning of specific words to whole ways of looking at the universe vary in different ages. Consciousness of time works in two ways. Your knowledge of history provides a context for the reading of the work, and the work may modify your notion of a particular age. So when we read texts written in the early 19th century, for example, we can see the things that were important. We can see the way cultures and conventions work. So when we were talking about gendered standards of labor, Little Snow White and the housework, or the age at which children are considered children, or what's appropriate for children, we're talking about a disconnect between the way we might perceive that in the 21st century and the way they clearly did in the 19th century. And that lets us learn and sort of contextualize uh, how things were, how they've changed. It's also a really good idea to remember that words matter a lot. Etymology or word history uh, traces the origin of a word. So, for example, 
who's the fairest of them all. The word fair is actually of Germanic origin. It means pleasing or attractive. It comes from the old High German, they are. If you look at slide 24, there's a much more detailed etymology. You can see where the word came from, and you can see in this etymology that fair doesn't just mean beautiful, pretty, peaceful. It also means light, bright, um, pleasant. So fair implies a sense of beauty that is reliant upon brightness, lightness, or in Snow White's case, whiteness. So we can think about the kind of coded uh, racial dynamics uh, to that beauty that she's described as having. Fair also, it's really interesting and, and should be pointed out here, even though there is an English word uh, that it, fair, same word, uh, that means just or um, right. That's not the same. It comes from, sounds the same, comes from a different place. So that's not the word we're working with here. Always look up the words you don't know. Look up the words you do know if they seem to be used in a way that is unfamiliar or interesting. The way words are organized also matter. One of the things that differs between our two texts here is point of view. Point of view is the perspective from which a piece of writing uh, comes and it dictates the focus and shapes the reader's experience of the text. So when we talk about point of view, we talk about first person, second person, and third person. And on slide 27, you get examples of each different perspective. First person uses the following pronouns. I, me, my, us, we, myself, are, and ours. Any words that include the speaker and writer turn the sentence into a first, the first person. The strengths of first-person narration is that it shares perspective, character, and emotional intensity. We feel what the narrator feels. We respond to events along with them. The weakness is that it lacks perspective and also sometimes significant information. We only know what the narrator knows. We can't get into the heads of other characters. Uh, we can only see what the narrator sees, and everything we see is through their eyes, through their bias, through their understanding. Second person uses any form of the word you, which has the effect of addressing the reader. The strength of this particular um, tense is that it creates a direct con connection with the narrator and reader. Uh, when you're reading with the second person, you feel like you're having a conversation with the narrator. It's a particularly effective way of giving instructions. The weakness is that it can feel aggressive, accusatory, or almost dreamy. And if you're talking to an audience that doesn't identify with what you're telling them to do. You will love this book. You enjoy Autumn. If you don't enjoy Autumn, uh, then you automatically feel that sort of disconnect that someone is dictating that to you. The third person uses pronouns like he, she, it, they, and them. Any words that direct the reader to a person or thing that is not the writer or reader, turn the, second, turn the sentence into the third person. Third person is an effective tense because it is so uh, abstracted, it's disconnected, it's, so it has a greater ability to be informative. It can see all, know all, and doesn't have an obvious bias. That's not to say that there isn't a bias, but that that bias is less, um, a perspective, that that is less immediately on display. 
most of the time you're asked to create academic text, your academic writing in the third person because it gives that area of, of abstraction and distance. There is on slide 34, a graphic that lays out the different points of view and the effects that they create. Point of view has dramatic effects for you, the student essay writer. It also has dramatic effects in fictional, in the text that we analyze, whether fiction or otherwise. Let's go back for an example of this and look at our two short stories. Look on slide 36 at the first uh, few lines from Little Snow White. We looked at this early example earlier in the podcast. Once upon a time in midwinter when the snowflakes were falling, and then the birth of Snow White. Soon after, she had a little daughter who was as white as snow, as red as blood, and as black as ebony wood, and therefore they called her Little Snow White. And as soon as the child was born, the queen died. So this is in the third person, right? There's no identifiable narrator. So this is just being described as it happens. This is Snow Glass Apples on slide 37. I do not know what matter of things she is. None of us do. She killed her mother in the birthing, but that's never enough to account for it. Okay. So look at the difference between, and, so, and as soon as the child was born, the queen died, and she killed her mother in the birthing, but that's never enough to account for it. In Little Snow White, the connection between the queen's death and the princess's birth are, is not made explicit. There's no blame placed on the child for the death of the mother. It's just laid out. This is what happened. In Snow Glass Apples, where the narrator is uh, clearly biased, or at least she has a set perspective on uh, the princess uh, and that her animosity toward the princess justified animosity, the animosity toward the princess clearly is coloring the way she's telling the story. She assigns blame. So Snow Glass Apples is not written in the third person, right? It's written in the first person and it takes on the perspective of the queen. So we get very much different experiences based on this one significant decision that each author made when they were writing their version of the story. So the Grimm brothers chose to use the third person to give it that sort of abstracted, um, distant, so even matter-of-fact feel. This is what happened. Gaiman chose to use the first person to tell the story through the eyes of someone who's very much invested in the story and who very much uh, is willing to place blame. So you get the same event described in very, very, very different terms. And this is an example of the power of perspective. So in addition to looking at point of view, you also want to be on the lookout for figurative language as you are analyzing texts. So figurative language is language that goes beyond the literal meaning of words. Like point of view, thinking about figurative language is really interrogating form. It's thinking about the kinds of decisions that authors are making in order to present their content. So just gonna do a brief overview now of some of the most common types of figurative language that you might wanna think about in each of these stories. Metaphor, it's defined on slide 39. It's a thing regarded as representative or symbolic of something else, usually something abstract. 
So a common metaphor is war is hell, right? The way a metaphor works is that it lets you understand something that might be unfamiliar by translating it into something that is supposedly uh, more familiar, or sometimes it's about amplification uh, to make a point. Uh, so in this case, hell is the worst possible thing, right? It's eternal damnation. It's suffering on an endless scale. So this amplifies whatever and clarifies whatever people might think war is. War is hell. This is a common metaphor. Akin to metaphor, but not quite as intense, are similes. Unlike metaphors, Similes include framing language that makes it clear that this is a comparison rather than exa an exact equivalence. So on slide 41, I've given you an example of a fairly familiar uh, simile. Life is like a box of chocolates. So here, uh, the equivalence is not absolute. Life is not a box of chocolates. It's like a box of chocolates. It's, it's similar to, to that in that you never know what you're going to get, right? Like there's a way in which this uh, is using the same logic, showing you one thing to help you understand another, but does so in a less intense and severe way. Another piece of figurative language, excuse me, another type of figurative language that it's worth thinking about in stories like Little Snow White and Snow Glass Apples is symbolism. And a symbol is something that is both itself and something else. So it is a concrete object that represents larger ideas uh, or concerns or even people. So symbols have to exist in concrete form, but they carry meaning beyond that concrete form. Peace is not a symbol, but a dove is often interpreted as a symbol of peace. On slide 43, I've given you guys some common and familiar symbols. So if I showed you a heart, for example, could you tell me what that symbolized? Now, if you're thinking love, yes, right? So this is a common definite, right? We, think, we tend to associate hearts with love. Why do we do that? Mm, goes back to a complicated sort of uh, medieval, quasi-medieval logic that located emotion uh, in that particular bodily organ. And now, is that actually literally true? Nope, it's not. But the heart is also sometimes a symbol of something else. Symbols are context-driven. They take meaning from where they are. And even recognizable or familiar symbols often mean something slightly different in a specific context. So, for example... A heart uh, icon in Instagram doesn't necessarily mean that you're in love with whatever you've selected. It just means sort of liked, saw it, acknowledged it, fear that you will disown me forever if I don't, right? Like that, it's a different kind of symbol. A heart on a driver's license means that you're an organ donor. A heart next to a menu, an, an entree on a menu item, means that it's probably heart healthy. So less sodium saturated fat, etc. We know this because we are sort of socially conditioned to decode this symbol. It's a complex cultural logic that we've been immersed in for so long that we don't think about it before we're able to decode it. We talk about symbols, 
we're talking about deciding which images, phrases, things, or people have deeper significance and what that significance is within the framework of a specific context. So snow, for example, is deeply symbolic in both texts, but it seems to mean very different things in each text. In Little Snow White, snow is beauty, right? It's whiteness, it's fairness, it's this sort of complicated idea of purity. Uh, in Snow Glass Apples, snow is something else entirely. It's death, it's smothering, it covers up the truth, etc. So when we compare and contrast texts like Little Snow White and Snow Glass Apples, one of the things that we want to do is think about the different types of figurative language they use and the different ways in which they might use something like the same symbol uh, in different ways and to mean different things. So, for example, on slide 46, we have this contrast between Snow White uh, and her death story in, or her, her almost death story, I should say, in Little Snow White, uh, and the princess in Snow Glass Apples. And in this uh, question, you can see that uh, Snow in Snow Glass Apples is again this sort of covering up um, and and uh, hiding the truth. It's something dark. It's something not dark. But it's something sinister and that ob obscuring. Whereas um, the Snow White, it's the beauty and the purity of the snow um, that keeps the huntsman from killing her. One of the ways that you might want to approach these two short stories, because if you've taken a look at the final project, you've probably noticed that your last essay for this class, which is the final project essay, is comparing the two stories. So one thing that I really recommend that you do is uh, make a list of all the similarities that you see between the two texts as well as the differences. And then choose one passage from each story that when read side by side, illuminates the most interesting similarity or difference. Uh, what is it? Why is it so interesting? And what does it tell us about each story? And I recommend doing this. I should say I'm requiring you to do this because this is your last participation assignment of the semester. Because I am nothing if not helpful, I have made for you guys on slide 48 a brief list of points of comparison and contrast that you can start with. Now this should not be your entire list. There's more in the story than what I've noted here, but you're welcome to use this as a starting off point. So while Little Snow White is in the, told in the third person, Snow Glass Apples is in the first. Uh, in Little Snow White, the queen slash stepmother dies horribly. That is also true in Snow Glass Apples, although it's worth pointing out that they are different horrible deaths. So a bit of comparison and also a bit of contrast. Uh, in Little Snow White, the queen's stepmother is the villain. Uh, in Snow Glass Apples, the queen's stepmother is the protagonist, and she's also the narrator, making a very strong argument that she is not, in fact, the villain. Uh, in Little Snow White, the princess is a beautiful little girl. In Snow Glass Apples, she's some kind of vampire-like monster, right? Uh, Blood-sucking demon, etc. In Little Snow White, the queen tries to kill Snow White out of vanity. In Snow Glass Apples, the queen tries to kill Snow White for the good of the kingdom. 
And in Little Snow White, there are hints of necrophilia and violence, whereas in Snow Glass Apples, it's much more explicit. So again, this is not a comprehensive comparison, but it is just a sort of starting point to think about where things are similar and where things are different. Now you notice that a lot of these similarities are similar only up to a point. So there's a sort of moment of both comparison and contrast that can work that way. When we think about comparisons, we talk about comparison in an academic context. We're really talking about comparing and contrasting. That is looking for both similarities and differences. So that's how you want to approach these two stories. Looking at what's similar, looking at what's different, and then thinking about what the payoff is for looking at these two texts together. What do we get out of comparing them? Now in this case, we're looking at two short stories that are based off the same root legend, and we're looking at a short story, Snow Glass Apples, uh, in which the author, Neil Gaiman, seems to be deliberately responding to and revising and changing the original form of the, of the written version of the story that the Brothers Grimm produced. So when we think about the differences between those two texts, we get a lot of interesting information about the differences between uh, the early 19th century, perhaps, in the late 20th century, and also sort of conceptions of gender, class, uh, age, etc. So there's a lot to be gained from comparisons, but you always want to frame for yourself as you're analyzing and for your reader as you're arguing what the payoff of the comparison is, what we as readers get out of thinking about the relationship between the text some templates for comparison, some ways to organize thoughts and articulate ideas can be found on slide 51. Um, basically, you have a few fill-in-the-blank templates here that help you organize your thoughts. Is this like or unlike? Um, does it seem alike but ultimately is more different um, or the other way around? You don't need to use these templates if they're not helpful, but being able to sort of plug values into them might help you think about the relationship between the ideas that each text is describing. When you write a comparison, a comparative essay, uh, you need a thesis. You always need a thesis. A successful thesis for comparison includes analytical claims about both of the texts being compared, as well as the payoff of the comparison itself. And that payoff we were just discussing earlier, what does a reader get out of reading these two texts together? So when you write your comparison uh, for the final project for your last essay in this class, you want to have a claim that analyzes each text. You want evidence, uh, types of evidence that you will use to establish that. And you want a payoff of reading your comparison together. So for example, say I wanted to look at a particular symbol from Snow Glass Apples. Let's say, and Little Snow White. Let's say for, in this case, I want to look at the apple, uh, which is a symbol, right? It is an object, a concrete object, that is both itself and representative of something else. So in Little Snow White, I could argue an apple symbolizes temptation. Uh, it's poisoned, it's got this sort of biblical allusion to it almost, like don't eat the apple Eve, don't eat the apple Little Snow White. Uh, so it's about trickery and delusion. There's some interesting work going on with the colors of the apple in uh, Little Snow White's case. There's a white half and a red half. Think back 
which half is poisoned. So I could analyze that. But then I could also argue that in snow glass apples, apples represent something very different, that apples are associated with the queen and they're about survival, they're about preservation, they're about uh, being a good leader. For example, I could look back at that passage uh, and talk about the dried apples that the queen is storing to get people through the winter. Uh, and I could talk about how she sort of ends up the sacrifice that she sort of describes in that passage. I could talk about uh, a very different sort of iconography and system of meaning developing around that, uh, about apples in that story. And then I would need to also talk about what we get from reading the two versions of apples together. Uh, so what we get, I would, I might argue, is that uh, in Gaiman's version, you get a deliberate revision of the sort of classic symbol about uh, apples, uh, the fall, the sort of Christian iconography. Uh, you get instead uh, a symbol that is about uh, nourishment and also kind of uh, responsibility and sustainability. So you can see the symbol being transformed just as the characters are transformed, just as the relationship between who is the villain and who is the, um, the hero, the protagonist, is transformed. Now, if this sounds like an essay you might want to write, uh, please pick a different symbol. Uh, but you can, symbols are one way that you can approach this. You can compare versions of a character. You can compare pretty much any aspects of the two stories that you want. You will want to choose to focus on a specific uh, part or you know, symbol, character, figurative language, um, point of view. You want enough of specific information so that there is a payoff and something to be gained from it. It's completely up to you, but make sure that you can identify it. A good way to think about uh, what you might want that to be is actually to uh, think about if I asked you right now, the most, to tell me what the most interesting similarity or difference between snow glass apples and little snow white is, uh, and then because you could tell me. If you could tell me that, uh, then I would suggest that whatever that most, in, whatever that answer was for you, that would make an excellent uh, jumping off point for a thesis, for a way to compare and talk about each text. All right, that's gonna do it for this lecture about Little Snow White, uh, Snow Glass Apples, and the process of comparison. The complete overview of the essay assignment is in your Canvas module, and I'm always happy to answer any questions that you might have. Just let me know either via the Canvas inbox or through my RBC email address. Take care.